Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, the podcast that's about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. In this episode, freedom of thought, how and why it matters, how human rights mechanisms and implementation improve our daily lives, and how big ideas about freedoms are being taken up by institutions from the UN, Supreme Courts, care homes, and the NHS. I'm delighted to welcome our two guests today, Ahmed Shahid from the School of Law and UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion and Belief from the University of Essex, and Wayne Martin from the School of Philosophy and Art History. Uh, welcome. So let's start with, with this. In the early 1300s, Meister Eckhart said in his Book of Secrets, take good care of what is good in your life, use it well. So why does freedom of thought matter? So, Wayne, you've been observing and talking to doctors and carers, talking to Supreme Courts, UK parliamentary committees. Ahmed, you've presented to the UN General Assembly last time in October 2021. So tell us a bit about freedom of thought and how we can use it well. Ahmed. Oh, thank you so much that? for having me on, uh, Jules. Um, you know, my approach to the subject was very much motivated by what I saw as growing uh, threats to freedom of thought, which I considered to be the foundation of human agency, the foundation of all other freedoms. So my concern was seeing the threats to it from technologies to other aspects of, of, of our life, which I thought required attention. And that's why I flagged that in my report to the UN last year. Wait. Great. Thanks, uh, Jules, and thanks to Ahmed for writing a, a terrific report. So, you know, I'm a philosopher, uh, so thinking is my business, um, and I learned a lot from Ahmed's report. I like this quote that uh, Ahmed uses from the U.S. Supreme Court, the right to think is the beginning of freedom. The uh, So that idea that in a way we're talking here about the foundation of all human rights, um, but it turns out to be a very puzzling one, as Ahmed has helped us to see. Yeah, and um, this is, I mean, we're familiar, I hope, with ideas about uh, freedom of speech and other kinds of freedom. So this is taking things either kind of back to fundamentals or forward in a in a kind of new sort of way. Um, should we start with the kind of problems increasingly violated worldwide, um, kind of pressures that have been emerging? What, what were you concerned about specifically? Ahmed? Well, there are numerous threats to this freedom. And the ones I document in my report include things like you know, settings of torture, where, you know, all forms of uh, physical or other coercive means are used to disrupt personality, I suppose, and therefore make people think differently. And and that is a concern. We see it in, in very serious levels in some countries where there are massive re-education camps designed to alter people's thoughts. That That's one, one element. The other is emerging technologies and how that can manipulate people's thoughts or in other ways interfere with our thinking processes or our thoughts and therefore our agency. And then we also have other elements of, of this of, of this uh, right being violated, things, things like, you know, pressures on education systems, uh, whether it's through funding or through other means to, to channel thinking in cert certain fashions. And of course, we have, you know, difficult areas to navigate, things like in the mental health, mental health settings, where, where do we draw a line in, t in terms of what is, you know, consensual, uh, in terms of people wanting uh, to have their, uh, if you like, you know, mental health 
you know, uh, address better and what can be coercive in what is in the, of the state. So there are a number of areas in which this right uh, gets violated or it requires attention. And these are some of the issues I've, I've raised. Of course, there are much more than this. And that's also a point I raise in my report. Mm. Yeah. So it's about agency and capability as well, but also the pressures that individuals and groups feel from others who are trying to kind of invade this space in some sort of way. Wayne. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at the history of litigation in this area, I mean, there are these different related rights, aren't there? There's, we hear a lot about freedom of expression. We think about freedom to hold one's own religious convictions and so on. Um, and some of these have been litigated, landmark, you know, Supreme Court cases across the world, really. Um, but actually, this particular right, the right to freedom of thought, has been much less thoroughly investigated. I can't think of the landmark Supreme Court cases that are about it. So it's sort of come onto the horizon here, partly through Ahmed's report, but through these changes, you know, that uh, are underway with new technologies, as Ahmed has said. Uh, but uh, to me, it's an area where there's a need for really fundamental thinking. And part of the, what's useful about the report is the way it really opens up and defines a space for doing that kind of work. So take us inside the UN General Assembly then, Ahmed. So uh, there you are, you, you present, you have the space to present the report, you've done the work, you're, 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 you're telling it to the nations of the world. What, what, tell us a little bit about what's going on there and what, what, what sort of response there is for you as one of the nominated special rapporteurs. Well, I think state delegations, men of diplomats, aren't the best audience for me to discuss this subject. I think many found it quite perplexing. Uh, and that's because, you know, conceptually, what is thought itself is, is a perplexing challenge. Uh, but because there's an enshrined right in the Human Rights Declaration, freedom of Article 18, freedom of thought is the beginning of Article 18, there is a need to engage with this subject. So many found it interesting that we should talk about this, and many found it also, I suppose, you know, uh, significant, given that many are concerned about violations of a variety of angles. So, for example, in addition to what I said earlier about about coercion to alter our thoughts, we have this eternal question of conversion between religions. What, what, is the, what is the limit of permiss permissible alteration of one's, I suppose, you know, mind in this regard? And then, of course, there's growing concern about emergent technologies and, and what to do with that. So, in some ways, it spoke to real challenges that they were facing, but also, at a broader level, conceptually, I think it was not the best place to talk about this. And I would have much love to have this done with you know, academics like, you know, philosophers like Wayne, where I would also learn myself in terms of the contours of this right uh, and, and how to best approach that. So I suppose in, uh, the, the important thing is the symbolic nature of the presentation uh, in the UN General Assembly and the report being presented and then what follows from that. What, what sort of things then happen next do I, you hope uh, no, for? I, I think many recognised that this was an, a forgotten right or an ignored right and therefore the need to engage with it. And therefore, there's been, I received quite a, quite a good, I suppose, feedback from this, from delegations, uh, you know, highlighting the, the, the fact that this is something they have to engage with. And there are, of course, you know, uh, groups, um, act, actors active, active in the field I am in, freedom of religion and, and belief, who actually are looking at this subject now in terms of committees of people looking at how technology uh, impacts upon our freedom of conscience, thought, thought conscience and, and belief. And therefore, that's one dimension uh, of this. And by and large, of course, more recognition that there are interconnections between this freedom and other freedoms that need to be addressed, such as right to education, right to health, 
and of course access to information as well. So I think that was a, there's now a much wider recognition that there's a need to really focus on this right, and we cannot no longer take for granted the freedom of thought because it is part of the inner forum will be guaranteed. I think one of the things we have to talk about here, Jules, too, is the status of this right. You know, in, in human rights law, we distinguish between absolute and non-absolute rights. There are very few absolute rights. I mean, the right not to be enslaved is an absolute right. Um, but there, not, the right not to be tortured is another. But there are very few. Uh, most rights are qualified rights in one way or another. The right to freedom of expression is a qualified right. I can't slander you or libel you and so on. Um, but the right to freedom of thought is an absolute right. Um, so whatever it is, you cannot limit it in any way, for any reason, under any conditions. So that really constrains the space. Or what is it that we exactly that we are affording um, this protection to? And then this phrase about alteration of thought, impermissible alteration of thought, that's a key phrase in Ahmed's report. I mean, we're all educators, right? We're in the business of altering people's thoughts, right? I read your books, Jules, you alter my thoughts. The, uh, so what is that boundary between the permissible and the impermissible? That's a really hard question legally, ethically, epistemologically, I think. Well, but my end point of the report is to call for more study of the subject, for more, for, for more investigation of what is implied by this right, and also for the Human Rights Committee, which is a committee of some 20 experts of the Human Rights Council, uh, to look at issuing a general comment clarifying the scope and content of this right. And one aspect of course is, is this point of impermissible alteration of thoughts. What are the, what are the, where are the lines we, we are for drawing this? And of course, I suggest some. This could be, you know, uh, where there is coercion. Know, visible coercion can be can be implied coercion or visible coercion. Implied coercion would be that by my expressing some thought that I'd be denied certain forms of, I suppose, privileges or access to certain things. That would be an implied way of coercing me. There can be also other uh, other ways of uh, other ways of changing people's minds. We have disinformation something we talk about today, where, where someone is talking to somebody, I suppose, without dis disclosing precisely as to who you are, and then trying to sort of, you know, achieve some change of the person without the person fully knowing that there's an attempted manipulation going on here. So there's a whole range of impermissible ways of changing one's thoughts compared with what we regard to be, you know, essential ways of allowing people to persuade people's minds uh, or people's ways of life, I suppose. If you're a doctor, medical doctor, you'd want people to sort of, you know, pick up healthy lifestyles. That's not impermissible, you know, a change of mind if it is done with full knowledge and consent of the people receiving the information. So in that sphere, I can imagine, I mean, the, the technology bit, we know that technologies develop quickly and take us into new spaces. They require different forms of thinking about their impact. So the kind of technology that now allows um, some kind of uh, entirely paraplegic individuals, people who haven't got any movement or speech, um, and sometimes without any eye movement either. Now we know that their thought can change things on a computer screen, and so they can express just through thought their desires and wishes. That's, that's from the individual outwards. But you can imagine, ah, someone thinks, that's very clever. We could just turn that technology around and do it the other way. So nobody's, I haven't heard anybody talk about that, but you can see with a, with a kind of wonderful technological development that that then could be used to invade, which clearly would be impermissible at, the, at, well, at, at one level, but then it's opening up kind of questions. Yeah, it? It's a dilemma here, right? I mean, there, there are 
positive uses of technology uh, with the you know machine and brain interface that would enable people to be more agentic as, as it were in terms of what they do. The same term, like you said, can be reversed and. There are, I suppose, experiments ongoing in laboratory context and control settings which seek to do that. Um, and, of course, the, the results aren't that accurate. And certainly in the real world, it will be far more complex. And the danger, which I highlight in my report, is that they could be tried and applied in real-world contexts. And there are already, uh, I said, examples here of brain scanning, you know, uh, I suppose brain fingerprinting in court cases whereby to, to, to evidence, I suppose, intent that a brain scan can be done to show that, oh, there was some brain activity uh, which which implies you had intent to do certain act activity. And there, in fact, I cite a court case in, uh, in, in that regard. So there is already applications in the real world which are quite problematic. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, you're, you've led a very significant project called the Autonomy Project from the School of Philosophy and Art History. Uh, nationally significant work on, on autonomy. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about, take us into um, uh, the, the lives of individuals in kind of care homes or in hospitals. You've, you've observed, you've seen what's been happening, you've seen close up the terrible mess in many institutions that came about in the last couple of years over, over COVID and our, our responses to that. Um, take some of these ideas into the lives of individuals and their kind of carers and doctors and institutions as well when thinking about kind of the individual when it comes to thought. Yeah, good. Thank you. Well, um, there are a lot of different points of contact here. But uh, one of the key phrases I also like in Ahmed's report is this idea, is it enabling conditions for freedom of thought? You might think, you know, you can just think you don't need any help, but you do need help, right? Um, and actually, the more disability you might be living with, the more help you might need. We all need help. You help me think. You help me think. Um, the And so I think that category of enabling conditions for freedom of thought is very relevant in these kinds of care settings and mental health settings. And it can take different forms. I mean, uh, we work with a partner, uh, an organization called Voices of Experience in Scotland, Graham Morgan. Um, and he has a chronic schizophrenic condition. Um, and when he enters an acute episode, he's gripped by the thought that he is the devil. And the only, he was told, he says, Wayne, the only thing I think is the appropriate thing to do in the realization of that thought is to kill myself. Um, so he's gripped by that thought and he can't think of anything else. So how do you enable him? You know, what are the enabling conditions for Graham really to, to enjoy the rights to freedom of thought? Another person we work with is a, a family who has an adult who has a really serious brain injury, frontal lobe injury. She's an amazing person. Her name is Grace. She does a lot of things on her own, but she has very high impulsivity. You know, the frontal lobe is the part that kind of filters out some of those impulses. It's where we make our decisions. Um, and so when she's presented with a stimulus, she goes for it, right? Um, you know, the one, one form of thought is, and that we're particularly interested in at the Autonomy Project, is thinking about what to do. That's the kind of thought that really matters, right? What am I going to do in this situation? So she has trouble, you know, having the space, the time to do that kind of thinking because of that immediate sort of stimulus. So what can you do in order to 
foster enabling conditions for Grace in order to be able to enjoy freedom of thought so that she can really, you know, go about planning her life and, and carrying out those actions. In a, in a, and so there are lots of, there's a lot of research in this area. In the law, we call it supported decision-making. So one's sharing the load in a way, cognitive outsourcing, right? So I find somebody else to help me, uh, support me in thinking for myself. So that's the kind of work, the ways in this enters into the, the kind of mental health field as well. Very interesting. So we, we, we we're going from the individual um, as us having thought, but then trying to kind of think about the context within which you might have interfaith dialogues, disability groups with voice and empowerment, um, uh, helping individuals to be with other individuals, a kind of togetherness as a way of um, doing stuff together, which might then be framing the thought in different kinds of ways. I mean, what, what were you thinking um, Ahmed, about the the kinds of processes that work in that sense. You've hinted at some there, um, Wayne. Well, you know, um, I'm not a neuro, neuroscientist, so my, my focus wasn't very much the law. And um, what I came, uh, of course, there's still a lot of gray area which requires further exploration, but one line I identified was the need to be focused on, uh, you know, preventing harm. In other words, you know, if the output of the alteration of one's thoughts, whatever process you use, psychiatric or neurological, is harm to that person, of course, there's a question about what harm is actually. But nevertheless, if it is harm, then of course there's a line to be, to, to be drawn here. But the difficulty lies when you have to look at between harm to the individual and harm to society. And where, and where to draw that line is an important one. Of course, if you apply human rights, though, it would be the least intrusive way of making sure that harm to society is, is protected. But the broader question that comes from my, my work is that I began from the presumption, established international law, that we are talking about an absolute right. Mm -hmm. But then the more you look at it, uh, the more you find in practice that it's not in some ways unfeasible. Um, you know, in some, some contexts, there is, there is a need perhaps for in some interference here. But then the question is, which, which is permissible? But what is required, what is clear for me was we require far more nuanced understanding of what freedom of thought is in different contexts you, you refer to because in some contexts, there is some engagement, some persuasion. Of course, it is permissible everyday life as well, which we need to do. In other contexts, there could be, you know, um, in the best interest of the person concerned, there are some interference. So it's not exactly therefore fully absolute. At the same time, what about the you know freedom of thought and external interaction we presume that it is a forum in terms of what's in the mind but actually it's not entirely in the mind uh, if you keep all the thoughts entirely in, your, in your mind you don't actually have freedom of thought you need some interaction either with yourself or with some other format to develop your thoughts so if it is entirely contained inside your you know in your brain or in your mind it doesn't really you don't have the freedom to uh, to have that thought developed so we are getting to what what it is to be human Really, I mean, in some senses, you know, if if we developed in a in a dark room from the age of zero, then we wouldn't have anything really. Um, it comes from our interactions with the world around us and other people and other animals and everything that's around us. Um, so you are kind of hinting at something deeply fundamental. I mean, one example would be you know prolonged isolation. You know, and, and it and attempts in that process to change one's one's thoughts. That's one example, one extreme of this. But those are other other examples here, whereby you actually need, uh, and we have to look at how far you protect that need to interact with some with some external format. So my digital footprint, my search history, 
you know, is that part of my, you know, forum in turn? I would argue it is. Uh, but states would say, no, if you visit this side or that side, it could be, you know, something of interest to them. But then really, you know, you have to find the protections for, uh, for this. So I, it's, it's a gray line. But my argument in the report is that already right to privacy protects quite a high degree what, what, what I written in my diary. But nevertheless, the point is that without some external interface, your freedom of thought really isn't fully guaranteed for you. We need to talk about this forum internum, right? So Fama has been using this concept, and it's one that lawyers like going back to ecclesiastical law. Actually, it's a it's a medieval notion. Um, so the and the report, you know, and the, the the legal work in this area draws this distinction between my my internal forum and then the external forum, where you know we're having this kind of conversation. Um, and at least for the last few centuries, uh, the the thinking about thought has had this, it takes place in the mind, right? It's in this private space. That's where thought takes place. What we're doing out here in the forum, that's is communication and that's different. So there's a, the, law, the law likes this distinction, it's convenient. And then you can see how this connects absolute right to freedom of what goes on inside my head, qualified right when it comes to talking to you guys. But as a philosopher, that, I, that distinction, I have to tell you, has been under a lot of pressure for about a century. Do you play chess? Uh, uh, not really. A little bit when I was younger. Yeah. The uh, you think about a chess problem. You know, suppose that black has just a king, and white has a king, two bishops, and a knight. Is it possible for white to checkmate black with that situation? I don't know the answer, but to figure it out, that's a problem for thought, right? That's a classic thought problem. But you need a chessboard, and you need pieces in order to do. You know, what should we do about the war in Ukraine, right? There's a problem for thought, but to work it out, I want to talk with you guys, right? We need to talk. We need to talk to people we disagree with. So thinking doesn't just take place inside the head. It involves this inner – and these days, our devices, our search histories, that's the real technology place here. Where So our, our thinking and our students especially, when they go to think about something, they think about it in connection with their machines. So thought transcends the boundaries of the mind. Um, that's, I think that's been a result in philosophy in the 20th century, and it's a reality right now in our world. So how do, we, how do we update the kind of conceptual framework for the right to freedom of thought to take into account these sorts of developments? To me, that's a really challenging issue. And search histories is a lovely, very concrete, and super important mm -hmm. example about that. So you've left an imprint there. In the 70s, Gregory Bateson, famous... Um, systems thinker talked about the field of mind. I mean, he was a biologist, but got into this kind of space of suggesting that the the thing called the mind, which has never been tied down, we don't know where it is, what it is. There's an emergent property in some kind of sense, but he was saying the emergent property is actually much bigger than individuals. It's to do with these interactions that you've been talking about. So there's a, there's that internal space, but there's also an emergent property that arises from all of our interactions that go on elsewhere. Very significant, but but actually quite difficult to play. And you know, a lot of people kind of could see this working when you started to think about systems. In other words, interactions between components within a particular kind of boundary of some sort. The Earth could be one boundary. You know, if you could think of the emergent property of nearly eight billion people interacting in various sorts of ways. But you then cut can't imagine what that actually means yet <laughs> but but it could mean something very significant could already do so this this external space 
So people have hinted at it, but I think they've kind of not found a way to apply it in some sort of way that actually then says, well, this is right and this is wrong. We should do this. We should do that. We should be thinking about this more or doing that more because it enables people to grow and develop. I mean, coming back to this notion, and it's linked to this idea of the, you know, the, the emergent mind and the, the broad breadth of it, the notion of this forum internum and forum external, the distinction, has been challenged even in the legal context as well. Of course, it's a, it's a red line for lawyers, but nonetheless, if you look at how, say, in my area of work, freedom of thought and freedom of belief, you know, it's very easy in some certain contexts, in certain belief systems, to draw a line between what's private and what's public, or what's forum internal, what's forum external. But for others, it becomes far more difficult. For those whose just beliefs rely on practice, uh, then the, or, or, or just observance, then there is something far more visible in what they have to do or what they do, uh, linked to their belief systems, also forum internal, and with their outer manifestation. So things like, say, the issues about the hijab, what Muslim women wear. Is that a practice, a manifestation? That's what we say. But for many who do wear it, it could be part of their internal belief that without it, they actually don't remain you know, in their mind who, who they are. So it's a very difficult line to, to maintain. But nonetheless, I think it makes things clearer. So in the court system, even if you take an issue of, say, freedom of thought, they're far, far more likely to look at freedom of expression and find a way to address that and, and leave out the issue of freedom of thought. Simple, simple reason that it's difficult to really conceptualize where it finishes, where it ends, where it begins, rather. If you look at the history of this forum internum concept in law, it goes back, as I say, to medieval Christian uh, uh, ecclesiastical law. And the original, I have to say, I've, there's a lot still to find out about this, but at least a piece of the puzzle is the original forum internum is the confessional booth. Right? They're going to be the issues in the form of externum where I'm going to be tried in an ecclesiastical court. But then there are these other things. That's not the appropriate place. The appropriate place is the confessional booth. Now, of course, I go in there by myself, but there's somebody else in there with me. So it's not the same as this totally private realm of the mind that Descartes you know, has this idea of in the, in the 17th century and so on. So it's really, I think actually we can go back, these examples from religious practice about the, the sort of dialectical interconnection between the private moment of faith and the public expressions. I actually think that's a place we can go back and really start to learn some, to get some resources for thinking about these contemporary challenges. Mm. So is there an element of choice in this that, that we're saying the individual has has should have the capacity, capability to think how they wish, to make choices how they wish, if they do no harm? There's an element of kind of offloading, like the confessional booth, as you said, you get stuff off your chest literally to somebody else and, and you're given some sort of um, uh, kind of absolution from that afterwards. Um, but, but if we're thinking about this freedom of thought, as, as, as we're saying. Um, where does that leave us when thinking about, well, the autonomy of individuals and how we interact? Is, is it kind of too simple to say, well, actually discussing this, thinking about this, interacting with others about, about choices, freedoms, what we wish to do, what we could do, brackets provided it doesn't harm others does that get us a long way just by simplifying it in that kind of sense um, well it does take us to some extent but there are much much there's much more than that that in this of course one is the fact that you know underlying all human rights ideas is the idea of agency and autonomy and, and of course that is linked to the freedom of thought but then what is freedom of thought that's a starting question here and we also say that all rights are interlinked and we see in the operation of freedom of thought the same thing as well. 
because privacy is important to ensure that we have all that space required to develop our, our thoughts and our and our you know personality and one example would be you know in the academic context i suppose you know we do a lot of modeling of things and that's part of developing our our thinking on this and that can happen on a variety of you know tangible ways it can be done and entirely on my on my on my laptop but even that is still an expression of sorts but then that helps me you know figure my thoughts out and modeling for bigger bigger things you know again trying to figure out what could happen and so on and so forth it's all part of one figuring of oneself you know once on on as was thought quest thought puzzles now that should be in my view protected but there are cases in which many will argue well not if you were planning this so you know there, there is this for example the counter terrorism legislation that tries to look at a pre crime or pre action of you know what's incorrect in your, in your mind that's when the intrusions begin and there of course you know we have the issue of where to draw a line yeah where do we draw a line i think you want to be careful with this idea about choosing what to think because uh, well there's this ambiguity isn't there in the word think in our concept of thought because partly there's choosing what to think about but then there's also choosing what to think about it right um and if you're in the business of choosing what you're going to think about it you're kind of in trump land right i mean he just chooses what he wants to believe right there's a, that's a pathology that's an epistemological vice so there's a kind of interplay here between the ability to direct one's thoughts that's a kind of a distinctive higher mammal ability um what do we what what are we going to think about what am i going to think about today that's a freedom um and there there i think it's apt to talk about choice but then there's also this idea no i'm going to allow my thinking to be guided and determined and actually by the best evidence and so on so serious thought requires that kind of give and take but there's willful thinking right and the th- thought itself isn't necessarily willful right i mean according to what i was reading in my report you know idea of thought is thoughts occur when and when the you know our nerves in the brain begins to f- fire you know and then you have thoughts and of course at some level we have no choice in thoughts you get but even those thoughts are monitored now that's where the danger is danger lies in fact that people can be presumed to think certain things or even have their you know unwillful thoughts are penalized and that's happening actually as we speak another element of this cause is how we develop our willful thoughts so there are actually two levels here what can be regarded as you know unconscious or, or unwillful thoughts and then of course what we deliberately focus on and develop the first part is totally involuntary uh, and shouldn't be punished second part also shouldn't be punished either, for, for that matter but it requires some uh, enables us some ing- agent activity and that requires an enabling environment it can be you know mental health can be education access to information it, ca- it can be even other aspects of protections that we require for privacy and so on so there are multi- the complex it's a very complex issue and requires multiple ways of approaching to understand that fully. So can I push that into the space of of what this means for individuals um who uh in whatever context we find ourselves in the the you've got these I think kind of you know really significant and big ideas about about the inner space the outer interactions the um uh, the things that we can do we will develop and change over time. I'm I'm thinking about kind of differences between cultures. So if you're presenting to 220ish um nations depending on exactly how you define that in the in the United Nations, but more than 200, um uh then within those there are very significantly different kind of cultures and ways of seeing the world. Groups who only see 
or name three colours, for example. Groups who see the world in a very different way to other other people, um, uh, which are kind of cultural norms that have emerged over a period of time, a kind of you know human evolution at a particular kind of place, who are thinking very, very differently. Yeah. Um, and right then, we, what we don't want, I presume, what we don't want is to say, well, there's one way that's the right way. We want to allow for the the kind of blossoming of the diversity and continuing divergence over time. It is broadly possible to think of different cultural aspects to this and because in some cultures the individual autonomy isn't that valued and there is a lot of you know value placed on making sure individuals don't harm society. That we, we see that. But it's also a more general problem. If you look at, say, issues of, say, conversion practices, it doesn't necessarily have a cultural root as such. But here we see certain people believe in that certain ways of self-identification or identity is harmful. And therefore, there is a, on their, on, on, as they would say, obligation on their part to you know correct this person's way of thinking. So that is one way of seeing that, you know, your thoughts, your thought processes, your identity based on your thought processes are, are wrong, is wrong, and therefore need to ch- uh, change that. That's, that's one, one element. The other element is I find that in some contexts, in regard to freedom of religion or belief itself, that people thinking certain thoughts seem to be deviant thoughts in some contexts, are then therefore, you know, um, sent to re-education camps or education centers or in some ways even more coercive ways of altering altering those thoughts do occur. So yes, it is, uh, yes, the, the diversity of the world does, ref- does gets reflected in the way they, they approach the issue, but it's a much, much bigger problem. It can happen any in any place uh, as we've seen today. Wayne. Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and it's it's more Ahmed's territory than mine. I, one one kind of uh, cultural practice I think about is the you know we have this idea of staging and intervention, right? A kind of familiar cultural form in our culture, um, and you know where where look we're going to get your friends together, we're going to and we're going to show you all the empty whiskey bottles or whatever it's going to be. Um, so that's enough, you know that that might be an attempt to get you to think about something that you didn't want to think about, um, and uh, so is that permissible? Permissible or impermissible? There's something coercive about that, right? Um, I mean, if we detain you in that room and lock you up, I think we've crossed a line pretty clearly. We so as long as we leave the door open and you're going to decide whether we're going to try to dissuade you, come back, come back, you know. Um, but we're the, the key. So anyway, that's an interesting cultural configuration that I think is at one of these sort of boundary, sort of gray areas in terms of the impermissible alterations of thought. Is it coercive or not? It has a coercive element to it, but you better leave room for the person to be thinking for themselves, right? Anyway, these are some of the sort ways in which the the kind of conceptual framework that Ahmed has laid out in the report can be applied to particular cultural mm. practices. The point that you make, 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 make aware there is that I argue in other reports about say women's right to agency. In some contexts, you know, we can have all the freedoms in the law project for them, but in many contexts they become meaningless because the, the context in which these are operate don't provide the space for that. So you could be entirely free to, you know, do whatever you want and, and so on and so forth. But the societal context might look down on that in ways that will coerce you into conformity that is not your way of, of thinking. So, yes, it's a, it's, it's a very, very uh, yeah. serious problem. Yeah. The domestic law might help here. You know, the, one of the things we work on is the Mental Capacity Act, which defines decision-making ability. And the law includes an elaboration of that concept. So to, what does it mean to have the ability to make a decision for myself? I need to be able to understand the relevant information, to retain it long enough to make a choice, to use and weigh that information. So you might say, look, when an intervention is in the service of supporting those abilities, 
there might be a kind of coercive element. You might not want to be doing this, but we're going to kind of push your attention to it. But when we, it's in we the might know best in some it, sort of way. There you yeah. go. Yeah. But the key thing is where, you, where the intervention is in in the service of supporting those abilities. That would be an enabling configuration for freedom of thought. I'm also thinking about time here. That the over time we change, we develop. We were talking earlier about learning. We learn stuff, and therefore we change. Um, habits are a really important part of. Uh, the efficiency of humans. Um, we we develop the automatic ways of doing things, which leaves more space for thought. And habits are, are, are formed in the prefrontal cortex and that when we think about them, imagine driving a car. You're sitting in the car for the first time you've ever driven. There are 30 things to think of at once. It's terrifying. You, you think, I can't possibly do this. 50 hours later, you're driving along without even thinking of driving, you're thinking about other stuff, you know, listening to music, whatever. So we develop habits by thinking about stuff and then we shunt them down to the ancient part of the brain and they become completely automated. And then that leaves space for other stuff. Now, lots of animals only have the automated habit bit, they haven't developed the thinking bit. So if we, going to your point, Wayne, if you wanted to create a different habit for example one that um that you might know is a problem an addiction and you want to do something different you want to get off that is probably going to take you well the rule of thumb is about 50 hours actually that's how long it takes to learn to drive a car about 50 hours to develop a new set of habits so somebody might know they want to do something, but they've got to stick at it for a period of time in order for the neurological pathways to be laid down, to become fixed and automated, and then allow you to do something else. So so it does strike me that at time A, you might be thinking certain things, and then at time B, a little bit later on, it's automated and you're doing something else. You might be very happy about that, but if it was coerced, you might be very unhappy about that. Um, so there's going to be, and there's no... There's no kind of right answer I mean, to that, is there? The idea of thought, idea of the me memory, idea of the conscious and the subconscious, right? All of these are different ways of how the forum internum, I would say, you know, impinges upon our actions, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, I talk about in my report what is called personality deception in torture context. The idea is that you deceive one's personality, one's learned, acquired habits of control the emotion and thought process. So then you make that person do diff things diff differently. So, you know... It's an extreme context what you're saying, but it can happen in, in much, much, I suppose, you know, um, everyday senses as well. Uh, children are particularly vulnerable to this kind of, I suppose, you know, personality shaping or, or, or disruption. And it can come through some things which are very explicit, such as, you know, punishments and, and, yeah, and rewards abuse and so on. And abuse. Yeah. Yep. There can also be something more subtle, whereby, you know, you know, obviously unknown to them, their, their minds could be altered. That's why the Child Rights Committee um, last year issued a general comment where they expressed concern about the use of technologies or the, the how the, you know, the social media platforms could become ways of manipulating their, their thinking. So it's, it is really, you know, um, a, a huge concern as, as to how the, the conscious, the subconscious and the memory all relate to how uh, we are able to express our thoughts. Mm. Um, okay, so if we if we thinking about where we are now, let's let's kind of move towards um, what next. What what would you be hoping for in terms of your kind of top two or three priorities? 
you know, it might be the UN kind of context, it might be national institutions such as Supreme Courts, it might be healthcare context, Wayne, such as you've worked in. Um, what What's the, the, um, uh, the hope for thinking about freedom of thought now that you've presented the report, it's settling in, as you said, people are a bit perplexed as to kind of work out what to do next how do we how do we show a bit of a pathway it is as you've said there are absolutes and relatives and it's going to need a lot more thought about thinking about freedom of thought to get us to this space um but but we've got to take some more steps from here what what are your what are your kind of summarizing right. next points one idea i borrowed from wayne i borrowed many from wayne <laughs> for my report is the need I, I call for you know deeper engagement on the subject by academia for, for philosophers and others to really in, you know engage the subject more deeply to understand more about this so that we can also you know learn from them that's one the others are called for stronger protections in national laws uh, in regard to privacy uh, in regard to freedom of thought as well as investment in enabling environment that's that's second the other of course is technology companies you know again I caution against knee-jerk legislation that would impede uh, development of technology but again far more cautious awareness of what's happening and more transparency in, in, in how they go forward. For my SX work at the HRBT project on technology and human rights, we call for you know algorithmic accountability. In other words, before developing uh, new technologies, we, we know there should be in, in the design stage, in the development stage, as well as the subsequent stages, there should be human rights compliance monitoring done. So I think that's the way to go forward, looking at good practice, making sure that we address technology from a human rights perspective, and also we, we look at you know engaging further on this. My, I think, main call in the report was for the Human Rights Committee to have a general comment developed on this, which would be, again, by a process, whereby they engage with experts, but then they come up with a far more nuanced, more detailed understanding than, than I, as a reporter, within a six-month period could have you know, present to the human UN uh, bodies. Interesting, Wayne. A couple of kind of priorities for you. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's a very fertile moment, actually. Um, as I said at the beginning, you know, this has been a kind of a neglected right. It hasn't been really subject. I mean, I think this is actually the first UN report on this topic, right? Um, and I think they're going to need to be more. Um, it has more work to do. Uh, so I look forward to those uh, future uh, those future reports. Uh, I think that there's an, an, you know, the way it is coinciding with really dramatic developments in technology provides an occasion for for doing that. But for me as also as a philosopher, it's an opportunity to really think about some of the kind of really deep conceptual foundations in the law, the way we think about the mind. Um, and then also this idea of enabling conditions for freedom of thought. In some ways, that's the business we're all in. You're doing it right now here. Um, but we need to think, I think, much more systematically about that. There's a, you know, in philosophy, there's been a strain which has thought, it goes back to the Stoics, actually, that somehow the, the mind is somehow protected. It's like this special, you know, the inner sanctum um, that it, it's it's immune from all these influences. That's your area of like original freedom. Um, everything else could go wrong, but at least you have the freedom of the mind. We know that's not true, right? Um, and so we need to think about how do you go about really fostering and protecting, um, developing that area uh, of freedom. And I think there's a lot of research uh, that needs to be done in order to think that through. Yeah, in individual cases. I mean, when Nelson Mandela was in prison on Robin Island um, uh, one angle of thought could be to feel victimized about how unfair this was clearly that was all the case 
but he makes friends with the guards in order to have a conversation. In a sense, he frees them up from their own imprisonment as guards. And one of them ends up on the stage with him when he's um, made president. Uh, and you think, wow, that's, you know, he was free to think all sorts of things. But one of them was, well, let's be friends because, you know, that's actually better for all of us. And that's a, that's a very grand gesture, it strikes me. Um, Ahmed Shahid, Wayne Martin, many thanks. Thank you. Thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.